Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may tune in. This is Minister Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and welcome to you. And I pray that this will be a blessing to you. Thank you for joining me. Today, we're going to continue in One in Messiah in the very next lesson as we continue to work through this and celebrate our Jewish heritage and understand how the Jews and the Christians are together in one in Messiah. And we want to understand more about that heritage that we share with the Jewish people. And so we want to begin today in this lesson by studying first, we're going to look at their past, their present, and some degree of their future. We're going to get more into the Jewish future and what God still has in store and how, how he's still at work concerning the Jewish people, that most of that will come in the next lesson. But in this lesson, I really want to focus on their past and their present so that we begin to understand the Jews and the Christians today. Where are we? What do we need to do? How do we respond? How do we treat them? How do we love them? How do we bless Israel? And what does it mean? So, in order to do that, I think I want to focus today on Romans chapter 9 and 10. But in, in doing that, I want to just make you aware, in the book of Romans, Romans chapters 1 through 5 deals with the fact that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but God has provided atonement for our sin. God has provided a mercy seat. God has provided a sacrifice, a perfect, sinless sacrifice, and it is in his son, Yeshua, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so I want you to understand that Paul deals in Romans. This is considered his great treatise on the gospel, treatise on Christianity. And he starts out in Romans 1 through 5, and he builds his case that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The common everyday sinner on the street doing all kinds of sins against the Lord, various things in Romans chapter 1, he speaks about that. Whatever category you might fall in, that you are in sin in, in those various things. Romans chapter 2, he deals with those that are self-righteous and think they've got it all under control and think that they're great because they're religious, they're righteous, they're, they're trying to base it on their own works and on their own what they think about themselves in terms of their righteous condition. In Romans chapter 3, he deals with the fact that all have sinned. Everybody, no matter what category you fall in, you are a sinner just by nature, you will sin. We see that in children. Why do you think they, they fight over toys? Why do you think they are selfish? Why do you think that they are stingy and so forth? It's just part of their nature as a child. And our job is to love them and to love them enough to teach them the right things in the right ways. But in their nature, inborn in them, is a sinful nature from Adam and Eve and the sin that was entered and has entered into us from their sin and their fall in Genesis chapter 3. So Romans chapter 3 verse 23 speaks of how all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But God is rich in mercy and he loves us. And so he saw that man could never, ever attain righteousness on their own. 
Man could never be saved on their own. Man could never be restored to peace with God and a right relationship with him on their own or on any law. And so he sent his own son, the one who was eternal, the one who is perfect in all of his ways and became the perfect sinless sacrifice for us to meet all of God's demands, to pay the sin debt for every person who will believe and receive him. So he has offered to us the gift of God and it's justification by faith alone. We can be restored just as if I'd never sinned. We can be set free and our sins washed away by simple faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's told to us in Romans chapter one through five. And for those who will believe in Jesus, Romans 5, 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Wonderful peace with God because our sins are washed away and God has imputed to us his righteousness, the free gift of his grace. And then in Romans 6 through 8, Paul deals with how to live now that we have been changed, now that we have a new life, now that we have eternal life. Now that we've believed in Jesus, how should we be living and how is it accomplished? And so Paul goes through that in Romans 6 through 8. Then in Romans 9 through 11, he deals with the Jews. He deals with Jews and Christians, Jews and the gospel, what it all means, how it all functions together, what, what's going on. And what about the Jewish people? What about the ones who God gave the law to, who God had chosen to be his people? What about them now in light of Christianity, in light of the gospel? So he's going to deal with that in chapters 9 through 11. And then in 12 through 16, he deals with things like the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He deals with other various daily living and practical living matters. As a Christian, he deals with government, how the Christian should respond to civil laws, various other Christian living topics and, and positions. But we want to focus on 9 through 11 in this series. And so today I'd like to cover chapters 9 and 10 in some detail as we explore Israel's past and Israel's present. In essence, you can say most of chapter 9 is devoted to Israel's past. Most of chapter 10 is the present and the possibilities and potential for Israel. And Romans 11 will deal with Israel's future and what God says will yet happen and can yet happen for the Jewish people. So let's get started by reading in Romans 9 through 10. And I'm going to read some and then stop and make commentary or exposition on that. And then we'll continue reading. I want to do it that way so that we get the full message of what he's saying in Romans 9 through 11 as we go through this. Romans chapter 9 Beginning in verse 1, it says this, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, 
who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. In these first few verses, Paul is establishing his heart's desire for his beloved people. Paul was a Jew. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He had studied under Gamaliel. He was steeped in Judaism and was destined to continue moving upward in Judaism until the Lord arrested him and caught him and talked to him on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. But Paul is saying, my heart's desire, I wish to God if it would happen that I could be accursed, if they would get saved, if my falling would give them salvation, I would die to myself and so that they could live, so that they could know Jesus, the Messiah, they could know that he has come. That's his heart. His heart is pleading for their salvation. He says in here, that he's talking about specifically the Israelites, the Jewish people, those that were his countrymen in the flesh, meaning in the bloodline. He was a Jew, and he's talking about the people of God, the Jewish people, his chosen people. And he says here, they were the ones that God gave the original adoption, the glory, when he showed up and walked with them through the desert, the glory cloud, the Shekinah glory of the Lord. To them belonged the covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the giving of the law, the Torah, Mount Sinai and the law that was given, the service of God, meaning the tabernacle and the temple duties and the service in the worship of God and the promises. And he says, of whom are the fathers? There he's referring to the fathers of our faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made an eternal covenant with Abraham and confirmed it and affirmed it directly to Isaac and directly to Jacob. It is those patriarchs that are the fathers of our faith. So that's who he's referring to here. And from Abraham's line, you can read this in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 3, from Abraham's lineage came the Messiah in the flesh because Mary was a direct descendant from King David through Nathan. Joseph was a direct descendant through Solomon, but Joseph was not his earthly biological father. Joseph was an adopted father, so to speak, or so to speak, a stepfather, we might call him today. But Mary was his mother, and Mary was a Jewess. And so he came through the line of Abraham. And that's what Paul is saying. And then he says, Christ came. Christ is the eternally blessed God. Amen. So then he goes into Israel's acceptance or rejection of the Messiah that God sent. And we will find through what Paul says here that they rejected Messiah, but even in their rejection, God still used it for his glory and had a greater and more eternal purpose. So picking up the reading in verse 6, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. In other words, he's saying that not everybody that's of Jewish blood is truly of Abraham 
And he's going to explain why in a moment. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, meaning the lineage of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is, in other words, this is what I mean by that. Those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. In other words, he's saying here that the line of the true seed of Abraham is the line of faith. God made a promise to Abraham and Sarah that she would have a son. And the child of promise was Isaac. And he represented the true seed of Abraham because of the faith of Abraham. And that faith being passed on from Isaac to Jacob. Because even while they were in the womb and they were fighting and all of that, the, the word came to Rebekah that the older would serve the younger. And we see that Jacob didn't warrant grace. He didn't warrant salvation. He didn't warrant promotion any more than Esau did. But it was because of the grace of God and the calling and election of God so that God would have a line of people that would bring forth the Messiah in due time and would pass the faith along because the original promise to Abraham was that in your seed through Isaac and Jacob and all down the line till the Messiah came, all the families of the earth would be blessed. It was to the Jew first, but not to the Jew only. It was for all the entire world. And we now know as Christians that that has been fulfilled because God did send the Messiah, his own son, in whom by faith anyone, Jew or Gentile, who believes in him will be born again. So Jacob was the other patriarch, the last of the patriarchs, so to speak, the last of the fathers, because he did love and respect God and God's word. Esau hated God. Esau despised his birthright. Esau sold it for a bowl of stew. And so God has had mercy on Jacob and raised him up to be the godly line and the godly father or patriarch in the line with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that line that would then eventually bring Messiah to the entire world. Beginning in verse 14 again, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I've raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. I want to stop right here and mention for a moment because he goes into speaking of Moses 
and the children of Israel under Pharaoh, and he begins to talk about Pharaoh. God had originally warned Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 4, I believe it's verse 22 and 23. If you read that, you will see where Moses was to go and warn Pharaoh, and he did. Moses did everything God commanded him to do at that time to bring forth the deliverance that God had raised him up to institute of the people of God through the Red Sea into their land as God was leading them to give them the land he had promised them. But God warned Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 and 23. And he said to him, he said to Pharaoh, Israel is my son. In other words, I love them. They are family to me. Don't touch them. Don't interfere with what I want to do with them. When I tell you to let them go, let them go. And if you mistreat my son and you don't let my son come back to me, I will take your son. So God warned Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 4 before all this other began. But you will see played out between chapter 4 and chapter 15. What you see played out is that Pharaoh says, Ah, who is this God? No thanks. I'm going to do what I want. I want them here. I want them serving me, and I'm going to be even crueler to them. And as Pharaoh hardened his heart, then God says, Okay, have it your way. And God hardens him because Pharaoh made that choice. And in the end, because Pharaoh did not heed the warnings that God gave through Moses early on, he ended up losing his own son and all of the other Egyptians lost their firstborn son from a judgment from God that finally brought the release of God's people. God will not be played around with and God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap, he tells us in the New Testament. So continuing in the reading, verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump? to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So Paul is saying here that he knew, God knew ahead of time what Pharaoh was going to choose and that they were vessels of dishonor. They were vessels of destruction and wrath because they would harden their heart against God and not take him seriously. But here he's saying he endured with much long suffering those vessels of wrath because he was going to accomplish a greater purpose. And he made his name great in the earth at that time because of the mighty deliverance he brought for the children of Israel to come out of Egypt. And many times after that, you will see it referred to even from the people through Rahab in Jericho when Rahab makes that statement about knowing God and what he has done for the Jewish people. God made his name known 
And he chose the Jewish people to be a vessel of mercy. He had prepared them for glory so that they could then glorify God and be his vessels in the earth. But then Paul takes it a little further and he says, it's not just the Jews only, but it includes the Gentiles. It includes all who will believe. In other words, he brings us to the fact that we are all made one in Messiah. He goes on and he talks about the church using Old Testament scriptures that he quotes here. Some say that the church is not in the Old Testament. It is in the Old Testament, but it's hidden in some of these prophetic words. For instance, he's fixing to tell us one. He's about to say one of those. Verse 25 and continuing. And he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called the sons of the living God. So he's talking here about the church. He's talking here about Gentiles who will come into this unity, this oneness in Messiah through faith in the Messiah that God was going to send. Continuing verse 27 and forward. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. So God is saying through Paul here, that God has left a seed, a seed that will believe in him. Otherwise, they would have become as destined for destruction as Sodom and Gomorrah were. So God was faithful to the Jewish people, even to this very day. Verse 30 and forward, What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion, a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So here Paul is saying that the Jews were trying to attain the righteousness. They have a zeal for righteousness but it was by their own works. It was by the works of the law. And that can never earn anybody salvation. You cannot earn salvation. It is a free gift. Jesus came and gave us the gift of salvation. And it is a free gift of grace from the Father. Praise be to God. Chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. We need to adopt this prayer and pray this way as we pray for the Jewish people. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, Paul is saying here, Jesus is what the whole of the law the Torah and the Tanakh were pointing to. It's Yeshua the Messiah. He fulfilled it all. Every single point 
every single detail, every single demand. He's the end of the law. He's the what the law was aiming at. He's the goal for which the whole of the Tanakh and the law was written to establish. And he says, instead of believing in the Messiah and receiving him, the Jewish people as a whole rejected him. They sought to bring about peace with God through their own righteousness, through doing the law. In our day, we might say, well, I go to church and I tithe and I, you know, I pay my tithes and I do good to people and I don't murder anybody. And, you know, I supply food for the food pantry at the church and I do all of these great things. So I'm good, right? Paul is saying, uh-uh, that's not what it's about. He said, it's not about your own works. It's about Jesus. He's the only one who could fulfill all of the works of the law. And we must believe in him and receive him. Otherwise, we stand as guilty sinners before a holy God. Verse 5 and onward. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Let me read that again. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. In other words, Jew or Greek, it doesn't matter. When you confess your sins and ask God and to forgive you and call upon him in simple faith, the same Lord is rich in mercy to the Jew and to the Greek. Verse 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Hearing by the rhema of God. Now I read that long section because that is telling us that that is the word of faith. That seed of Abraham truly are those who have this kind of faith. Is talking about faith in the Messiah. Abraham had it because of the promise of God in the coming Messiah. We now have it because the Messiah has come and he has brought eternal life to all who will believe. He has brought forgiveness of sins and eternal redemption to all who will believe. Jesus has done that for us. And if we will call upon him confessing our sins, asking him to forgive us and believe that Jesus was raised from the dead as payment in full for our sins, washing them away. We will be saved. 
We will have our sins washed away. We will be a brand new creation in Christ Jesus. And we will have our names written eternally inscribed in the Lamb's book of life. Not temporary, not for another year, eternally inscribed in the Lamb's book of life. Praise be to God. And we will have the future of heaven to look forward to, the future of life eternal with the Lord and all the beauties that that holds for us later. Paul in this section also is talking about reaching the Jewish people as well as the Gentiles with the gospel, with the good news. They need to have the good news told to them. We're going to talk more about that later on, but this is the faith that is evident in the true descendants of Abraham, those sons and daughters that are believers in the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, and who have come to know him through faith, not through the righteousness of the law. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, I want to be found in his righteousness, not the righteousness that's in the law, and not my own works, not my own righteousness. Verse 18 and continuing in chapter 10 of Romans. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. So here is another place where the church is found in the Old Testament. And Paul is saying here, he's quoting directly from Moses' writings. And he says that part of what the church will do, the church meaning Messianic Jewish believers and Gentile believers in Messiah, what the church will do is provoke the Jews to jealousy. Now that does not mean that we anger them, that we are prideful toward them, that we're, we're boasting in that we're saved and you are not. It's none of that. That will not accomplish the purposes of God. And that is sin before the holy God. We are never to feel that way. We are never to think that way. What it does mean is that we will whet their appetite. That what we have, they will want. They will go around and they'll, they'll think, wait a minute, you're talking about Isaiah? You're reading from my prophet, Isaiah? How do you understand Isaiah's words? No, Moses, the law, you, you have an honor for the Ten Commandments. How is that? Those are our commandments. Those are our, we were the ones that were chosen. We were the ones that had the adoption. We were the ones that had the relationship with God. How are you so excited about this Messiah, Jesus? How are you so excited about the God of the Bible? Why are you interested in our Tanakh, in our Hebrew scriptures? What's the deal here? Whatever you've got, I want it. That's what he means when he says provoke the Jews to jealousy. He's talking about being such a Christian and such an influence and such an example of the Yeshua Messiah and of their God and the, the way that God wanted them to be his people in close relationship with him, that we have that close relationship with the Lord so much so that they want it. They want what we have. Paul tells us in one place how as we go out and we work and we serve the Lord and as we live in this life, we are diffusing the fragrance of Christ. 
And that fragrance is a fragrance that draws them to the Lord. That's what Paul is talking about here. Verse 20 and forward. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And that is still true to this day. So God is saying here through Paul, I was found by those who were not even seeking me. The Gentiles weren't interested in the things of God. And yet God made himself evident to us. And he was found by those who didn't seek him at first. And he has been made manifest to those who weren't originally asking for him. And yet the Jews who've been seeking him have been rebellious toward him, many of them. Some have believed, praise be to God. But overall, the Jewish people, even to this day, God has stretched out his hand to them, but they've been disobedient and contrary to him. Jesus even said that in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37 through 39, where he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I have wept for you. How often would I have brought you under my wing? How often would I have wooed you? How often would I have drawn you near to me? But you, Jerusalem, you Jewish people, you were not willing. You were not willing. So then he leaves them desolate for those that time period that we are still in now. But there's a coming day because he says, you will not see me again until... There's a coming day that that word until represents when they will call upon the Lord and say to him, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God. And we will see in the next lesson where God is not finished with the Jewish people. God still loves them. God is still after them and God still has a future and a hope for them. And may we join in Paul's heart to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, to pray for the Jewish people to be saved. And I want to end with this final scripture like I ended in the class. Normally I do try to take this live in class, but at this time that did not work out like I needed it to last night. And so I'm retaping this for you now. And I left the class with this desire and with this verse, and I would leave you with the same. May we pray this over the Jewish people, that this will quickly come to pass, and that many, 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 even millions, will believe in Yeshua the Messiah that God has sent. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 through 14, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day, there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the morning at Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family by itself, and the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, 
the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of Shammai by itself, and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. Let's join with the heart of Paul to pray that all Israel will be saved and to pray that this scripture will be fulfilled quickly, that God will pour upon the Jewish people a spirit of grace and supplication, and that they will look and recognize him whom they pierced, because all of us pierced Jesus. Everyone in the world, we are the reason he died. And that they will look upon him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn in sincere repentance. Because if they will do that, just like Romans 10 said, and they will call upon the name of the Lord in sincere faith. They will be saved. May you share in that heart and may you share in that prayer for the Jewish people in sincerity before the Almighty God. I pray that this has been a blessing to you and Lord willing, you can continue to join us for all of the remaining episodes in our One in Messiah study as well as other messages brought to you through Covenant Truth Ministries. God bless you today. In Jesus' name, amen.